If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Oh, I hope you're all caught up with the goings-ons of Alan Wake and his adventures within the Dark Place, because we're about to bring the stories of Saga Anderson and the writer together. But remember, time within the Dark Place isn't linear. It's bending, it overlaps, and it's confusing. As we carry on Saga's more linear timeline, Alan's deeds and very presence within her story will seem disjointed and random, but it's just time bending and breaking on itself a bit. Saga Anderson traveled through an overlap to put former FBI agent Robert Nightingale down, a journey that took her as close to Alan Wake and the Dark Place as one dare go. When she spoke with Alan, it was after he had just made his way through that subway system in the first draft of his book, Initiation. He still had a very long ways to go in his ventures. After their conversation ended, Saga was on the shores of Cauldron Lake. The waters have finally receded with the closing of the overlap. The lake's power was low, so to speak, so the waters weren't as high. A strange anomaly occurs before her, and it is the writer himself, Alan Wake, who appears in the muck. He awakens panicked, knowing that something is his fault, that it got out with his face, and the Dark Presence changed the story. They had to stop it. Sounds like the jabbering of a madman. The Alan before Saga is the same man that she met in the overlap, but a great deal of time, so to speak, has passed for him. This is Alan after he wrote all three drafts of Initiation, after he saw Alice's tape where she appeared to take her own life, after he stormed into the writer's room and he shot himself in the head, realizing after the fact that he had stopped himself from finishing the edits on Scratch version of the last book, Return. This is Alan after a great deal of pain, anger, and horrific realization. But his memory of that is also quickly fading. He's going to forget, he's going to mix up details, remember pieces that don't quite fit together. And Saga has no idea how he's here, because she has so much to learn about rituals and summonings and the Dark Place's broken sense of time. She has no idea that Alan is here now because of something that she will do in the future, but we'll get to that later. Let's stay on the beach for now. The appearance of the real-life Alex Casey is of course a bit shocking for the writer. He's the real deal, the previously unknown inspiration for his own Alex Casey character. Soon enough, Alan will realize that his creative writings weren't entirely original content, but there are bigger things to worry about right now. Alan asks Casey if he has a flashlight. It's not safe without a light, that they're going to need to keep an eye out for manuscript pages, but Casey assures him that they already know it's going to be fine. They need to get back to town, get Alan someplace safe, cleaned up, and start figuring out how to handle all of this. Saga can take time to explore the trails that are now accessible, but inevitably, she ends up back at that parking lot. En route, the monitoring station from earlier in the day, the one being serviced by the FBC technician named Steven, it's broadcasting an alarm loudly. Activity within the lake has been detected. An altered world event is taking place. Saga radios Casey, asking if he knows what this is, and he says that he started looking into the FBC some years ago, but he was stonewalled. They're definitely involved with Alan Wake somehow, though. The monitoring station isn't making a network connection. Ilmokoskala may have already rerouted the network traffic. The FBC probably already knows what's happening here, but the Cult of the Tree is also going to be well aware that something is happening in that lake. On the drive back to Bright Falls, Saga reassures Alan that they're going to get him to their field office where he can clean up and they can start talking things through. Her daughter, Logan, calls during the ride, immediately reassuring her mother that she's okay and dad shouldn't have even texted her about it, but Saga didn't get any text from her husband about their daughter. Apparently, Logan had slipped in the shower and hit her head. 
She has a concussion and she could have drowned if her dad hadn't, you know, heard the fall take place. It's not a great thing for Saga to hear, especially since earlier that day the very strange Rose Marigold had mentioned her daughter drowning. But her husband says that things are okay. Logan is fine, he's keeping an eye on her, there's nothing to worry about. In Alan's edits of Scratch's book called Return, he wrote Saga Anderson to be the hero of the story. And in those edits, Saga Anderson's daughter Logan did die by drowning. But the inspiration for that comes from this event, a fall in the shower that could have been dangerous. But in the end, it wasn't. In return, Saga Anderson had left her husband David, taken Logan to live in Watery with her. They'd started over fresh, but their new beginning ended in Logan's tragic accidental death. Keep those details in mind as we go, and remember that Alan tended to accidentally lift things from reality. At the lodge, Alan passes on the offer to get in contact with anyone who may want to hear from him. He believes that everyone around him is under threat of danger, though he can't articulate quite why. Saga changes the topic to Robert Nightingale and those weird pages. Alan says that he has no idea what happened to Nightingale after the 2010 AWE. He never saw him again after that. And as for the manuscript pages for the book Return, well, Alan fumbles here. His memory is jumbled, he's confusing events already. The author's name, his name, it was on the title page and it was violently scratched out. Scratch, Scratch had to have done that. But that doesn't make sense. None of it makes a cohesive narrative and he can't remember what happened. In the cleaning room, Alan spots a dark puddle, set befittingly before a poster of Audie and the janitor's music group. A gift from the strange paranatural entity, brought straight from Cauldron Lake and set here intentionally. It's a narrative tool that allows us to shift between Alan and Saga's stories. But we've already walked the dark place with Alan, so we'll stay here in the real world. Everyone say thank you, Adi! We love you, Adi! Saga repeats everything back to Alan that he's told them, and he admits that, yeah, it does sound absolutely insane. He's been in a nightmare dimension, in a lake that's not a lake. And it looks like New York City, but it didn't always look like that, and it wasn't actually New York City. And she confirms that his evil doppelganger, Mr. Scratch, got out somehow too, but he doesn't know how or where they are. But Mr. Scratch looks just like him. But Mr. Scratch is also the dark place, just with its own body. Alan refers to him as just Scratch, though, and confirms Saga's statement that this Scratch wants to escape to recreate the world in his image, just like Alan Wake himself did in The Dark Place. He would change it into a nightmare. Remember, Alan didn't finish his edits on Return in the Dark Place. He kind of shot himself in the head in grief and rage, not thinking through his actions. So Scratch's original ending, it still takes place. And in that ending, Scratch takes over the world during Deerfest, which is in just a few days. What makes this such an extreme escalation of danger is the Dark Place, which mostly I'll just refer to as Scratch from here on out, isn't confined to the Dark Place anymore. That rule that existed before, where Alan's writings could only influence and nudge reality, not change it, well, those are no longer on the table. Scratch only has to obey what is written within Return, so they have a couple of days to figure this out, but once the writing and the story comes to pass, once Return is finished, Scratch will have free reign to actually change reality in this world. Whatever was written in Return is going to start soaking into everything here. Memories will change, personalities will shift, events will differ from what they otherwise would have been because that's how it was written to be in the book. It's already been happening a bit before, like when Rose Marigold remembers Saga's daughter drowning, and Alex Casey misremembering facts from the Cult of the Word case. The only ones really immune to this are the Andersons, Alan, Warlandor, and to an extent, Adi. From here on out, things are going to get even weirder in Bright Falls. Their best chance at stopping the story is getting the clicker before Scratch does. Alan thinks that if he can get the clicker, then he can undo the writing, send Scratch back to the dark place. But he doesn't remember that Scratch is currently hitching a ride in himself. 
And uh, that would be playing right into Scratch's plans, wouldn't it? Get Alan the clicker, sure. Then who uses it? Saga asks why she and Casey are in the story. And Alan thinks that he was the one who wrote the original return and that Scratch did the edits, so he believes that the edits were put in to hurt Saga and Casey. And while that's a good theory, it's not nearly the truth. In her mind place, she profiles Alan Wake, puts together a new case board, and figures out that Alan has more manuscript pages that he's hiding, so she demands that he turns them over. The page details Saga's home, a trailer on the outskirts of Watery, where she sees the clicker for the first time, in the hands of a cultist. They believe that the cult of the tree is serving Scratch, so these encounters will certainly be dangerous. But you know what? Let's stop setting up the story and get on with the adventure, shall we? Saga heads out to Watery alone to investigate what that manuscript page said, while Casey babysits Alan Wake back at the lodge. Watery has a definite mood about it. Overcast, foggy, tiny as hell, and sections of the road are flooded. After the local lumber mill shut down, people started leaving to find other jobs. The fishing industry is starting to dry up too. The Cuscola brothers and their Kalavala Knights motorcycle club were doing everything possible to keep the area alive, but it was an uphill battle at every turn. Saga pops out to look around, try to get a lead, and she finds her first bit of weirdness with the Valhalla nursing home worker Blum. He greets Saga as though he knows her, and tells her that Tor and Odin have run off to do god knows what. That manuscript page mentioned a trailer, and Blum directs her to a trailer park, one just outside of town owned by Ilmo Koskala. The brothers are just up the road at the bridge if she wants to try to talk to him. Blum is kind of taken aback that Saga doesn't recognize him. According to him, they've seen each other around town quite a lot. There are other sights to see around Wandery, like Audie singing on the stage at the town center, Tom Zane the filmmaker, and Tom the poet film posters that are kind of cool to read. There are mostly naked men at the sauna to socialize with, and, well, that's about it, actually. Ilmo and Yako are just up the road, inspecting a flooded section of it. They're extremely welcoming to Saga, and this time around, Ilmo greets her with a great to see you back in Watery, even though it's her first time here. The edits and writings of Alan Wake in return are starting to impact the people that live here. Yako also greets her as though they're old friends. She asks them about the cult of the tree, which they lead unbeknownst to her, but they're cool customers. They give her information about it without outright lying about their involvement. They're wily ones, but they're not dishonorable. And when Saga asks about the trailer park, Ilmo readily tells her that she's more than welcome to go check it out. After all, she was their funniest resident, and she's starting to understand that Wake's writing is affecting their memories. It's like they remember a completely different reality. Saga profiles the brothers in her mind place and susses out that they don't think the cult of the tree is actually an urban legend at all, that there's something dangerous in the woods that they're guarding against, and they truly do have happy memories of Saga and her daughter living here. The spare key to her trailer is being kept in a nearby amusement park, Coffee World. Ilmo tells her exactly where they are in the gift shop. They uh, can't stay to help because they need to go to Bright Falls for something, and the road up to the park itself is flooded so she'll have to take a path through the forest to get the keys and reach the trailer park. None of them realize the implication of it, but this flooding means that the lake is rising, which means the powers within it are surging. There's going to be trouble ahead from the Dark Presence, and it's taken monstrosities. Yaku tries to call ahead for someone to get her keys ready, but no one answers. Before she even reaches the park itself, there's trouble. It's just dark enough for the Taken to be haunting the woods, and they're pretty vicious, the perfect horror accompaniment for the dour mood of Watery. There are concerning manuscript pages along the way, detailing the presence of the Taken in the forest, Scratch leading them on, his desire to obtain the clicker. Coffee World itself seems to be abandoned. Hopefully, whoever was working here today made it out before the darkness fell. 
Saga has to find tools to break into the gift shop where her trailer keys are being stored within a safe. This place is creepy as hell in the dark, and the taken haunting the grounds don't help with the gloom. She gets her keys, walks the entirety of the park, finds the Huatari well, spots the Kalavala Knight's garage building, and eventually makes her way out of the park, back onto the main road. The trailer park that she's been trying to find is just across the way. Well, 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 look who it is. The terrible duo, the Valhalla escapees, the rock and roll hellraisers, Odin and Tor Anderson, somehow drunk off of their own supply. But Saga's never met these two before. She doesn't know who they are. Odin instantly recognizes her though and joyfully greets his great niece. Tor steps in and tells her right away that what people are saying isn't true. They're lies to hurt her. Don't believe a word of it. They're trying to explain that they exist outside the fiction of Alan Wake, and she has to trust her instincts when it comes to Logan's safety and her own past. But they do have to stop Scratch, or it might all become real. They're trying to help, but they're doing it while completely shit-faced, so it sounds like drunken blabber. It's a little bit much to take in on a first meeting. But Saga pieces together what they're trying to say, that they too exist outside of the story. But how is that possible? And what the hell do they mean, existing outside of the story? What, what is that supposed to imply? Odin tells her that it's possible because they're family, Vikings, gods, the Andersons, and that it's so good to finally see her. They finally get to formally introduce themselves to her. But it's kind of hard to believe, especially given how intoxicated they are. They could just be weird, drunk old men. They encourage her to keep on with her business though, they won't interfere. She's welcome to come and see them anytime at the Valhalla nursing home. The interior of what was supposedly Saga's trailer is concerning. When he was within the dark place, the writings of Alan Wake could only influence reality. But with the dark presence loose in this world, and with the writings of Return taking place, reality is starting to alter to comply with the horror story. There are old power bills on the table from 2018, and Logan's bedroom is fully furnished with toys, posters, books, and personal belongings. She finds a picture of Odin and Tor and a cultist in the Kalevala Knight's garage, with the clicker proudly on display. She needs to get into that shop to look for the clicker, she thinks. But then on the desk is a newspaper article detailing the death of Logan, dated July of 2019. Of course she panics and she tries to call Logan, then her husband David, when she doesn't answer. The writings within Return are starting to come true, which means that there's a risk that reality could change. Logan really could die. She could already be dead. Saga doesn't yet know how far the powers of the Dark Place reach, and as a mother, she can't risk tempting fates. She'll treat Logan's fate in the book as an absolute truth should she fail. A storm is beginning to kick up outside, and at the entrance of the park is Deputy Mulligan, wearing a cultist mask, shrouded in the darkness of a Taken. Scratch isn't far away. She can feel his presence and see his screaming face. She follows Mulligan out of the park, and then Deputy Thornton makes his presence known as well. These two, they were responsible for the death of a woman. They thought she was a Taken, so they shot her. They tried to cover it up, but the guilt ate at them. And the Dark Presence used that. It made them weak. It broke them down, and then it took them over as Taken. And Saga knows that they are, but they're leading her someplace. So she follows. They take her back to the Kalabala Knight's garage, where she knows that the clicker is, but why would Scratch allow his Taken to lead her here? Why would Scratch want her to find the clicker? On a computer, she finds emails between members of the motorcycle club, talking about an OOP, an object of power, language that they learned from the documents that they stole from the Federal Bureau of Control at the lake house. It's about the clicker. They use it for a ritual of some sort. So. The Koskala brothers, they're cultists too, does that make them her enemy? In the back room of the workshop, she finds secrets held by the cult of the tree. 
seems that they aren't what she may have originally thought. They stole FBC documents, and now she gets to read them, too. The FBC had been long tracking the locals, watching the cult, studying the lake, but seemed less in the know about the area than the cult itself, which the FBC dubbed a low-level threat. Within the basement is the heart of this little operation, the meeting place for this secretive cult. Creepy as hell, but with the right imagination, it's also pretty freaking cool. I would totally set up an office down here. The clicker itself is being kept in this meeting room, which looks like a ritual site in an old church. Mulligan and Thornton stand at the altar, retreating into the shadows when Saga enters the sanctuary. She approaches, intent on claiming the clicker, but before she can touch it, Mulligan and Thornton steal it away. Drawing her here was intentional. Leading her to the clicker was intentional. She is being led on to another place, but why? You can call Scratch many things, and certainly amongst them would be intentional. She needs to get the clicker from them, somehow. A manuscript page appears before her, completely unedited, to guide her to where she needs to go. There's another overlap here. The way into the overlap is via a ritual, just like what she did with Nightingale's heart at the first overlap she went into. The manuscript page says that the float outside of the shop is the key. After dispatching one hell of a big boy taken in the garage, Saga gets to work figuring out this parade float. A page from Wake guides her on what to do. The overlap is based around the history of Watery, as is this parade foot. She needs to complete it, find all the missing pieces to the display, and that should reveal an overlap. A notepad on a workbench clues her in on what pieces are missing and where they can be found around Coffee World. The only location missing from it is for a mask. Via profiling, she discovers that the mask is the skull of poor Mocha Moose, whose heart gave out after being fed too much coffee. Now, do you remember when Alan Wake was in the dark place going through Thomas Zane's theater? It's a little bit out of sequence, but remember, the dark place doesn't have a linear timeline, really. Time bends on itself. When he was going through that theater, there was a plotline about two officers that were trying to join Alan's fictional Cult of the Word. And at the end of his draft, there was a weird moose skull, a mask, poor Mocha Moose. Saga profiles Mulligan and Thornton, demanding to know where this mask is, and they allude to Alan's adventures within the theater, mentions the Grand Master and such. She sees exactly where the moose skull will appear when the time is right. Saga gathers what she needs to for the parade float ritual, and Alan completes his draft in the dark place, sending the moose skull to Saga in the real world, and she grabs it on her way back to the garage. Everything has a place on the float. It's not too hard to figure out. It's just the process of carrying out the ritual, not the burden of intensive puzzle solving. And sure enough, once everything is in place, the overlap reveals itself, right out of the creepy Huatari well. As soon as she enters, Scratch makes his presence known. This will not be a safe endeavor, and she's facing it completely alone. This overlap looks like a cabin beside Cauldron Lake, with hiking paths up the hills nearby. It's frighteningly dark, and notes detailing the attitudes of Mulligan and Thornton don't really help the situation. While pleasant at face value, they were kind of assholes when no one was watching. Saga walks up the trails alone up to a clearing with the Huatari well. The next pass within this loop, it's progress. She hears Logan's voice as she goes, meant to torment her and distract her. The next loop, it's raining. Saga knows that she'll have to go through this a few times before reaching her destination, but that doesn't bring a lot of comfort to the situation. In this loop, the well is full of blood. She can't use this to pass through the next part. But the singing of Adi pierces the darkness. His music guides Saga on, up to another path. It's not safe, there are plenty of dangers to fight, but at least she's not completely alone here. She sees parts of Alan Wake's fictional world overlapping with hers. That movie that Tom Zane created called Yutenyu, as seen from it overlays with her path. 
It leads to a rock tunnel where she sees Audie, but she makes her way onto the well, and this time it's traversable, and she passes on to the next part of the loop. Within the tunnel beneath the well, blood replaces the water, and she hears Alan wake, proclaiming that he's still trapped. Something is helping him, but it doesn't make sense. How is he still trapped in the dark place if he's here in the real world, too? In this loop, there's a corpse, the rain is still falling, the lake is full of blood, and Audie's singing is coming from a radio, but it doesn't really sound nice. The reception isn't super great, so she might be on her own from here on. This loop is far shorter, for Mulligan and Thornton are here, and they're eagerly awaiting her arrival. The duo ascends from the well, with Thornton taking the position of a sniper and Mulligan chasing Saga around the cramped arena. But no matter how many times she takes each one of them down, they'll just re-emerge from the well. She has to destroy their Dark Presence anchors, light them up, send them away, chip away at them, and destroy their ability to come back. Take down each point around the area and then fill them up with buckshot, which is much easier said than done, because Mulligan is relentless and Thornton is one hell of a shot. She can get moments of reprieve by killing their current form, but it doesn't last long. She has to act quick. When finally each Dark Point is destroyed, she's able to kill Mulligan and Thornton and exit this overlap. She once again sees Alan Wake. It's her second time seeing him, but it's his third time seeing her. He tries to tell her that he has been tricked, that Scratch wrote Return, not him. He's trying to fix the story, but it's broken up. She doesn't understand. It doesn't make any sense. How is she talking to him here when Alan Wake is in the lodge right now? The two are on very different wavelengths. He's talking about editing Return and trying to talk about Scratch and Alice and her being a hero. She focuses on Logan, her family, and saving them, and then it's gone. She's understanding that these encounters are occurring due to a broken timeline. While he is still in the dark place, he is also out. Both are true. The overlap fades away, and Saga holds the clicker. And with her victory comes hope that she can stop this nightmare. The waters of the lake recede, the road flooding is gone, and she can walk back to her car in peace now. She calls her husband, but he doesn't answer, so she leaves a message asking him to call her back. She's so worried about Logan. She wraps up her business within Watery and gets back on the road to the lodge. There's a lot that the writer needs to answer for. But before she can arrive, the Cult of the Tree descends upon the lodge. Remember, they've been handling the dangers of the lake for years. They know who Alan Wake is, and they viewed him as the source of all the evil coming out of the lake. The Cult had vowed that should Alan Wake ever emerge from the lake, they would kill him. They knew that he was in the Lodge, and they would not let this evil man escape with his life. For their families, for their community, for their future. Alex Casey is inside speaking with Alan, pressuring him to explain himself, but the writer's head is starting to hurt. Scratch is becoming a little less dormant, causing Alan immense pain. Casey, meanwhile, is going full speed on accusations against him. He uses people for material, capitalizes on suffering, rejoices in the harms of others, right? Alan tries to tell him that he can't create something out of nothing, from the dark place he could only influence. He realizes that his inspirations within the dark place were just visions of things that were already happening, of things that would happen, dream logic. He thinks that he stopped writing because he realized how dangerous it was to the real people that he was writing about. But he doesn't know how Return came to be if he stopped writing, did he just forget that he wrote it? While Alan goes on about his writings, Alex Casey notices something outside is very wrong. There's noises that shouldn't be happening, and he tells Alan to shut up. But then the shooting begins. The Cult of the Tree is here to kill Alan Wake to stop the Taken at their source, to end the madness within the lake. Casey tries to tell them off, but not even the FBI will stop them from safeguarding their home. 
He is all that stands between the cult and Alan, and he takes that very serious. While Casey tries to track their movements, Alan Wake's head starts to ache with unbearable pain. He sees that it's Scratch, trying to force his way into Alan's head. Casey leaves the room to confront the cult head-on, leaving Alan alone to fend off Scratch. It's a fight that the writer loses. Scratch is too strong. He overpowers Alan. The Dark Presence enters into the para-utilitarian, and the writer loses consciousness. When Alan wakes up, he's surrounded by and covered in gore. He has no memory of what happened here, but the bodies around him tell a story. Casey is still trying to fend off the cult outside, but Alan is on his own now. He knows that Scratch is loose. He can feel his presence, but he doesn't know what Scratch is planning. What does he want? What is he intending to do? There are bodies all over the lodge, and they weren't killed via gunshot. They were violently murdered and dragged around the building. Outside, Alan can hear Alex Casey shooting at an unknown aggressor. He grabs a flashlight and a rifle and then takes off towards the sound of his gunfire. On the path out of town, he encounters Taken who have inhabited the bodies of the cultists. So many victims taken by the darkness who were just trying to stand against it. The closer he gets, the more his head bursts in pain, but he doesn't give up. Of concern is when Alan gets closer to Casey's yelling and the pain eases off a bit, like Scratch is moving away from him. And then Casey starts screaming, asking what something is. The howls that follow are otherworldly. Something is descending upon the FBI agent, Scratch. Alan's head screams in pain and he can see Scratch honing in on the agent and then the writer goes down again. Do you remember when Alan was in the dark place when he shot the fictional Alex Casey in the alleyway? The dying man had said that he realized he was the dark place, a vessel for it. In fiction, he was written to be a conduit for the dark presence and now that fiction is leaking into reality. FBI agent Alex Casey is in very real danger. His partner, Saga Anderson, is nearby. She finds the unconscious writer with a cultist kneeling over him, knife in hand. She stops the would-be killer moments before they go wake, revealing them to be Ilmo Koskala. He tries to tell her the truth, that she doesn't understand what they're really doing here. What a time for backup to finally arrive. It's not the FBI, though. The very effective and well-informed Federal Bureau of Control is here to usurp control over this ongoing altered world event. Agent Kieran Estevez has been part of the Bright Falls team for many years, and she steps in to take over. While she's not outright unpleasant, it's a pretty blunt and pushy move from a team that's about a day late and a dollar short. They want all of Saga's files, her resources, but she withholds the clicker. She doesn't trust this FBC with such a powerful object, and she has no intention of stopping her investigation. Estevez promises that they'll keep an eye out for Alex Casey, and the FBC hauls off Alan Wake. Saga is on her own now. Odin and Tor had promised her that if she needed anything, she could visit them at Valhalla, so she's going to take him up on that. She's only moments into her journey before Tor calls and tells her that, yeah, it's about time she came out for a visit. Somehow, Tor knew that she would be coming. But how specifically he does know that isn't important right now. They have bigger problems. Something hits him, and he unloads some expletives towards a hag. And then the line cuts. It's one plot beat after the next, a thrilling horror drama unfolding. Despite the foreboding red of the sunset, the walk to Valhalla is gorgeous and atmospheric, under better circumstances, maybe even idyllic. And the nursing home itself is stunning. This was once the home of Tom Zane, now known as a filmmaker rather than a poet. According to the story, the eccentric filmmaker was going to convert it into an artist commune that he was going to call the Ocean View Hotel. It had a very cultish vibe about it. After Tom and Barbara vanished in 1970, the house stood empty. 
And after the 2010 AWE, Barry Wheeler went into business with Torin Odin Anderson, getting them back on the road for one more big world tour. But after a few years, it was very clear to Barry that they needed to go back home. It was time for them to rest. In 2014, he bought the old Zane home and established the Old Gods Foundation. In Barry's absence, the house would be completely converted into a rest home for the elderly of Bright Falls, a final place for them to call home. Unfortunately, the contractors who were supposed to take care of the property didn't honor their side of the deal and construction was never completed. They cut and run. When Saga arrives, it's Rose Marigold who answers. She's one busy lady. Between managing the Odier Diner, keeping the area clear of Taken, writing her Alan Wake fanfiction, and taking care of the residents here, this Lady of the Light has always got something going on. Saga asks to see Odin and Tor, but Rose very clumsily says that they can't have visitors. They partied way too hard on their trip to Watery and they're sleeping it off. So Saga asks if she can instead see the other residents, just clearly trying to find an excuse to get inside. And Rose is very clearly hesitant, but she allows her in. It's dangerous outside after dark anyways. Rose drops her off in the main living area and she gets back to work, giving Saga free reign to walk the entirety of the house. There are several familiar faces around Valhalla, folks that she's met while walking around. Radio DJ Pat Main is upstairs broadcasting out, sharing a foreboding story about a teen girl who died in a nearby abandoned bunker. Norman is downstairs with Mandy May, still in his towel from the water sauna. Audie the janitor is here, insistent on mopping, cleaning, and stealing Blum's work clothes. After all, it's just in his nature to keep things tidy and in order. It's a bit strange to see Rose chastising a paranatural entity. He even gets a little bit sheepish about it. It's time for these two to have a formal introduction. This is Zaga's first time speaking with Adi face to face, and he's his usual sociable self. He's happy to help, but he doesn't know where Odin and Tor are. They're hard to keep track of. Upstairs, she finds Tor's room, but it's absolutely trashed and he's nowhere to be seen. But was he assaulted or drunk? Odin's room is nearby and he is firmly planted in bed. Either he had way too much liquor, and external force is causing him pain, or both. Probably both. He doesn't respond to Saga, but, well, they're family. They're the Andersons. He doesn't need to be lucid to commune with his great niece. In her mind place, she profiles Odin, but something remarkable happens. Something Saga has never experienced before. Odin takes her seat at the profiling desk and talks to her, answers her questions. Not in jumbled dream language or half sentences, it's a complete conversation that he's fully aware of. He's so happy to speak with her, to tell her that she has the same powers that they have. And she entertains the idea now that maybe they really are family. She asks how this is possible and he explains that she's a seer, she can see the truth. But he'll let Tor tell her more about it. He doesn't want to steal his thunder after all. But Tor is in danger, he needs her help. Odin doesn't know where Tor is, but he can feel that the darkness has marked his brother. It wants to take them. She must beware of Cynthia Weaver. Something has befallen her and she's become lethally dangerous. Saga needs to get over to the attached wellness center to look for Tor there. Before she heads out, Saga asks about that picture of them that she found at the trailer, of them drinking with the cultists, and Odin says that they don't have any interest in joining the cult of the tree, but they were fine drinking with them. Odin views them as fools who don't know what they're getting themselves into. She asks about the clicker, and he's happy to hear that she found it. It appeared on the shore of Cauldron Lake some time ago. It'll help her stop the horror story. Odin says that the clicker, it's like an amp. It takes the power of an artist's creation and it cranks it up to 11. In the right hands, it can blow people away. An unartistic mind could use it, sure, in things like basic rituals to kill Taken. But in the real world, in the hands of an artistic para-utilitarian like Alan Wake, reality itself could change. Odin doesn't have any more information that could help her. Her next stop is the Wellness Center. 
It's hard to avoid the old woman at the end of the hall. When Sog is near, she starts talking aloud, so she walks up to the old woman to hear what she has to say. This is Cynthia Weaver herself, the once Lady of the Light to Tom Zane. She's met with a terrible fate. The Dark Presence has claimed her as a Taken, a valuable prize for Scratch. Cynthia's presence feels just like Nightingale's, Mulligan's, and Thornton's, which means that there is an overlap nearby. On the top floor of the mansion, a door with a spiral on it sits at the end of a hall, locked. Audie very suddenly intercepts her and gently says that it's locked for her own safety, at least for now. His room is directly beside this one. It's a vitally important place that will play a role later in the story. Back on the ground floor, Saga confronts Rose about Tor being in the wellness center. And Rose really does mean well. She tries to tell Saga that it's dangerous in there, but the FBI agent insists, so she complies. And this building, it, it's creepy as hell. It's, it's like walking through an elementary school at night. It's a very different vibe when it's dark. She finds a bed with bloodied bandages on it and a note saying that Tor was being treated here. He was found out cold near a phone with burns on his hands and a cut on his head. She eventually finds the old man yelling at Cynthia Weaver, calling her baby, asking her to wait up. Cynthia intervenes when Saga tries to follow him, locking a door to prevent her from catching up with him. While looking for a way through, she discovers that Blum himself was a member of the cult. And he seems so nice, so nondescript, it's going to be impossible to tell who is and isn't actually a part of that group. When she does finally find a way through that door, Cynthia tries another tactic to keep her away, outright violence. One of the residents of Valhalla has also been claimed as a Taken and is sent to impede her progress. Nighttime has come, so Saga's going to need to be ready for Taken to descend on the area. On the other side of the wellness center, there's one hell of a ruckus being kicked up. Rose Marigold is yelling at Tor, who's waist deep in the pond. She's telling him to get out of the water this instant, but he's just a giggling fool about something. And he's right in front of an overlap. Rose yells at Cynthia Weaver. She knows she's here, and this kind of behavior is not okay. But even the chastisements of Rose Marigold can't stop Scratch. Tor is pulled through the overlap in the pond, much to Rose's immense disapproval. The Lady of the Light isn't willing to tell Saga what just happened. Rose believes that she's guarding secrets for and helping Alan Wake. It's completely understandable that she wouldn't spill those secrets. It's admirable, even. You know, despite the obvious gaslighting she has to resort to, because she's really not good at making up stories on the fly. Via profiling, Saga learns about something that Rose has been waiting for. She found a manuscript page that said, The hero will say, Wake has returned. That's how she'll know to help them. So Saga repeats it back to her. Wake has returned. And Rose nearly squeals from the excitement. Alan is finally going to be rescued. She'll help in any way she can. She gives Saga the page that Alan directed her to hold on to and her keys to Valhalla. That page is directions on how to unlock the overlap, the ritual steps that she will need to take. Odin can help her. She needs to play a special record on the jukebox. The music on the record is a single song that Tor wrote for her and her mother long ago, an apology for the things that he did. That is the only key to this overlap. Odin tells her that the record is in the museum. She can get it now with Rose's keys, but Cynthia beat her here. The record is gone. Via profiling, Saga demands answers from Cynthia, and the poor, infested woman reveals that the record was someplace that she feared where she died, in her bathtub. Do you remember draft two of Alan Wake's journey into the dark place? It was the murder hotel plotline, where in the end, the devil rampaged through the hotel to find his muse. The devil, Scratch, murdered the muse in her bathtub. When Alan found that murder site, there was old Cynthia Weaver's body and beneath it was a strange record. Saga's third overlap will coincide with Alan's second draft. 
The record will be in the bathtub waiting for her. She just has to get there. Except the power's been cut, so Sokka can't get through the electronic lock on Cynthia's door to fetch it. But Audie steps in, tells her that this has an easy solution. There's a generator down in the basement. Just get that going. She'll be able to unlock the door. Just, you know, be careful down there. By the time she's back outside, Taken have arrived. It was only a matter of time. The residents of the nursing home had thankfully been ushered onto the front porch by Audie, under bright floodlights which would keep them safe. The basement is beginning to flood, and the body of poor Vladimir Blum is resting in the water, killed by the taken Cynthia Weaver. There are several old newspaper clippings about Tom Zane, the filmmaker down here, manuscript pages about what happened to Cynthia Weaver after Rose took her lamp and threw it into the overlap for Alan. There's a weird clip of Yut and Yu that she can check out, but once the generator's back on, it's time to get back up to the house and into Cynthia's room. The woman's voice echoes through the halls and she terrorizes Saga as she gets closer to the record. Within her bedroom are pieces of her past, mementos she kept to remember Tom Zane, who she remembered as a poet. There's a manuscript page that details Cynthia's descent into the dark waters, but in the tub, she finally gets it. Anger's remorse, the musical apology that Tor made for his daughter and granddaughter. As soon as the song begins, the overlap opens up. Somewhere in there is her grandfather, and she's the only one capable of saving him now. The overlap takes the form of a story from Brightfall's past, an old wartime bunker where teens would hang out. A young gal named Nora Hesburgh died down here. There's graffiti all over the place about it, and old newspaper clippings detailing the tragic death. Just as in the other overlaps, the voice of her daughter taunts the agent as she goes. Saga knows that it isn't real, but no parent wants to hear their child in distress, begging for help. This overlap is more complex than the other two. It goes on much longer and is trickier at parts to get through. She also sees flashes of and hears Ellen Wake much earlier in the process. A few times passing through the loop, she starts hearing Tor in the distance, yelling to Cynthia, calling her baby, asking if they can stop now. The echoes lead her to a new spot in the loop, what looks like a central control room. Tor is apologetic to Saga, saying the hag tricked him. Meanwhile, poor taken Cynthia Weaver cackles in the darkness over it. This is the end of the loop, but it's not where she needs to be yet. Tor is close, but he isn't here. She decides to get the power back on to see if light changes the room, if it will bring Cynthia out of hiding. The old woman prowls the waters, making a very Dark Descent-esque sequence of Oh my god, oh my god, don't get in the water. We were all traumatized by that, right? She has to sprint through sections of flooding to reach safety before Cynthia can grapple her. There is a generator off one of the side wings, illuminated in red, that kicks the power back on, but it's not until Saga turns on the central station that things really kick off. The room changes, revealing a previously flooded lower level. But oh no, this, this won't work. The Taken Cynthia Weaver changes the room, floods it in water and darkness, and finally attacks Saga Anderson head-on. Poor Cynthia was so smitten with Tom Zane in her youth, and upon her was placed a burden, a task that no one should have to carry. She was his Lady of the Light, the safekeeper of the city, forever waiting for the one Zane wrote of to come to Bright Falls to fight the darkness. Everyone called her odd names, said she was a strange person, didn't take her serious. But had Cynthia Weaver not been such a true Lady of the Light, Alan would have failed in 2010. Countless more could have died. She had few comforts in her lonely old age and even fewer things to protect her from the darkness, which viewed her as a prize. When Rose Marigold took her angel lamp and threw it into the lake, Cynthia became another victim of the Dark Presence. Despite her personality flaws and her jealousy, the dame, the muse, the lady deserved so much better than this. With her death, the overlap begins to fade away. The power of the Dark Place is receding again, and she sees Alan wake. This is Alan after he completed the Ocean View Hotel murder play draft. 
his second draft aligning with Saga's third overlap. And Saga is still a bit confused on how Alan Wake is in the real world, currently in the custody of the FBC, yet he's also in the dark place talking to her. Both of these things are true because of the broken nature of time flow and the dark place clashing with the linear time flow of reality. Soon she will understand why though. She tries to tell him that she already has the clicker, she's trying to get it to him, but why did he write her family into the horror story? But their communication is already broken up, they're not on the same page. He tries to tell her about Alice being in danger, stopping Scratch, that he found the manuscript page for Return, but all she cares about is her daughter. He's not able to relay that he didn't write Return, that Scratch wrote Return. She tells him that he needs to change the story, but they just fail to communicate their ideas. The overlap vanishes before she can make him understand, and before he can make her understand. Logan is still in the story, and she has the clicker, so she'll make the son of a bitch change it. Tor made it out too, announcing his escape with loud retching and heaving. He's a bit of an ungrateful ass to Saga, but he quickly backtracks and apologizes for his attitude and thanks her for helping him. He's trying, at least. Tor was always the difficult one of the brothers. Odin had a far more gentle streak. She wants answers from him, and he gleefully agrees to answer any questions she might have, but not out here, not out in the open, in the mind place. He knows that she has one, after all, they all have one, they're family, and the ears of the Dark Presence can't reach them there. In the mind place, Tor expands on Odin's explanation of their family's powers. They can see through the lies, they can see through the story, they're not bound to Wake's fiction, therefore they can fight it. They're not part of the story, they can make the story. And Saga finally admits to herself that, yeah, it's true, she's a seer, she has powers like Tor and Odin, they are family. Tor tells her that he was a terrible father to Freya, and that she didn't deserve the things that he put her through. There was a blowout between them, though he doesn't expand on precisely what, just that it involved Saga's biological father somehow, a complicated bastard who was always thinking two steps ahead. But after Tor betrayed her trust, Freya took baby Saga and left, completely cutting ties with her family. And Tor knows that Freya is gone, so he needs to give his apology to Saga. He truly is sorry for the things that he did. And she can feel that he's telling the truth. He's full of remorse. Forgiveness may come in time, but at least for now, Tor has his granddaughter back in his life. He tells her that the clicker is indeed like an amp, but they're dealing with Alan's story, or Tom as they call him, kind of like Audie. But because this is Wake's story, he has to be the one to rewrite it, so they have to help him. They have to get the clicker to Alan Wake for reality to be set right. Before she takes off, Tor reminds her that Logan is alive. The story hasn't been fully enacted yet. They can still stop Return from coming true. The FBC might be an issue though. They have Wake at the sheriff's station. And will they, or specifically will Agent Kieran Estevez, understand their plight and allow them to fix the horror story? Alex Casey still isn't answering his radio, he's still missing in action, so she'll get to the station and try to talk to the FBC and Wake alone. The walk back to Bright Falls is peaceful, and there's a lack of gore decorating the walls of the lodge. Folks are outside cleaning up glass and debris, being snide about the people with the ridiculous masks. Outside the police station, someone tells Saga that they don't like the sounds coming from within the building. It is completely dark inside, and it's been wrecked, like a tornado went through the offices, and she can hear Taken locked in some of the rooms. Agent Estevez calls out to Saga from a closet. She's bleeding pretty badly from a leg wound. The previously all-business FBC agent actually smiles when she sees Saga, completely taken aback at the FBI agent being here. Good thing Saga didn't leave when she told her to, hmm. Estevez asks for help and tries to educate Saga on what they call the Shadow, what Saga knows as the Dark Presence and the Taken. She promises that she'll handle it. 
Once the station is secured, Estevez opens up to Saga about what the FBC knows. She and her team came in to check on the lake, but things were way worse than they anticipated. They're undermanned for something like this, and backup will take time, even under the best of circumstances. There are problems at HQ, which raises the question of if the oldest house is still dark in 2023. They're low on resources, but they do have equipment to fight the shadow. Alan Wake is still here, secure and safe in the holding cells. They did find Alex Casey, but he had a close encounter with the Dark Presence, and it did something to him. It hurt him somehow, but he's alive. Or at least he was. He went down to the morgue for an exam, and then the Taken attacked. She needs to go down there anyways to get the power back on before the cell block is even accessible, so she can check on Casey. There are a lot of corpses in the morgue, FBC agents and local deputies, which doesn't bode well for Alex Casey. She finds him barricaded in the exam room, looking like he's about six hours post-heart attack. He's breathing heavy, not standing up straight, but at least he's fully aware and in control of his actions. He tells her about the Dark Presence. He saw it. It attacked the Lodge. It was a monster cloud. Wake was telling the truth about it. He was knocked out and he was found by the FBC later. He does have the fuse that she needs to get the power back on. He'll be waiting here until everything is handled upstairs. Getting the power back on opens all the non-holding cells in the building, and all the Taken that were walking around hone in on her and rush her in the morgue. But at least taking care of this will make everybody upstairs much safer. Just don't think too much about whether or not these people were real or just shadows. Estevez fills Saga in on the logistical nightmare that has been this AWE. The lake house has been lost, completely overtaken by the Dark Presence. There's no backup nearby, all they really have is the equipment in the back lot, but it is specifically designed to combat the Shadow. So they are on their own now, but they're not helpless, they can fight back. In the holding cells, Ilmo immediately turns his anger towards Saga. They ruined their chance to stop this by killing the writer. If Alan's dead, then nothing comes out of that lake, and of course, the government and its agencies ruined it. If they had just kept out of it, Bright Falls could have defended itself and stopped what was ever in the lake. Even Yako has some choice words about the situation. They just want to save their home. And as for Alan, well, Saga confronts him about writing her and Logan into the story. He starts talking about Scratch, but why the hell would she give him a pass on this? He is responsible for what happens to Logan. She could die because of him. And what the hell is he thinking resorting to this sort of cruelty? He promises that he'll fix it, but first he just needs the clicker. Just give him the clicker. Before she hands it to him, and she is going to hand it to him, the head pain returns. Someone is playing their hand out a bit too soon, disregarding the nuances of a good horror story. And the Koskala brothers immediately try to intervene, warning Saga to not give it to him. He's the devil, a monster. And oh, how right they are. Scratch shows his true face before the prize is in his hand, with no fear that it won't inevitably be his anyways. Scratch attacks Yako Koskala, tearing him apart from the inside out in front of his brother. And Elmo is shocked. How do you process something like that? Yako is killed by the wordless devil who takes his jacket as a macabre prize. No prison cell can hold him now. Scratch claims his weapon, and the pursuit begins.